What about me? Um, whatever you think is relevant. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? What, what interests you? So my name is Pete. I am a plumber, technically speaking. However, a few weeks ago, I sort of had an experience that um, I think will like has changed the direction of where I feel like I'm going in my life. So I've since started working on uh, a life coaching company. Well, it's not really a company because it's just me. But yeah, it's called Your Life Starts Today. My name is Safiya. I am a trans woman who is in the beginning phases of HRT. I am a drag queen, an artist, a student. I'm Florentine Verhage. I am an associate professor of philosophy at Washington Lee University. Uh, I've recently moved to Victoria, um, but have been teaching philosophy and gender studies for about 10 years now. Great. Uh, my name's Scott Woodcock. I'm acting chair of the philosophy department here at UVic. You're listening to Play on Words on CFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the Songhees and Husaitnich territories of the Lekwungen and Sanchathan speaking peoples. On this episode, we're exploring the concepts of solipsism and sonder. As ideas, solipsism and sonder seem to be at odds, but our exploration of these terms brings up their similarities and how one might lead you into the other if you go deep enough. And if you don't know what solipsism and sonder are, our four guests will explain everything. I mean, the quickest way to explain solipsism is just the view that uh, no one else exists but oneself, um, that there are no other minds. Um, though I think a nice way to explain it is to think of it as a subset of a more general uh, view of just skepticism, right? You can be skeptical about all kinds of knowledge about the outside world. Um, so solipsism is really a particular kind of skepticism when it comes to our knowledge of other minds. So that's like the idea that um, you only know that you're experiencing your life and you can't really, you can only make assumptions as to what other people are experiencing. Solipsism, I would say, is very often traced back to a philosopher named René Descartes that people might have heard of, who's quite well known. Um, René Descartes, at one point, does a mental exercise in which he wants to make sure that anything that he thinks or encounters or sees around him, that his, his views on the world right, are certain and not just based on mere conjecture. Um, and so he does uh, a particular exercise for that. Um, part of that exercise is that he doubts the existence of other people as real, right? So at one point he looks out at a window and he says it could be that the people that are walking across that square there are mere automatons, right? And so that gets you into a discussion of how do I know what's going on in other people's minds since I do not indeed have direct access to the thoughts that another person has in that mind, how it feels to be another person. Could it be the case that that other person is not really a living human breathing um, um, human being? Um, and so it's, it's, it's really closely related in that sense to the problem of other minds. Um, and solipsism would be the position to think, I am the only living complex human mind who has experiences, who has complex thoughts, and the others are maybe mere automatons or 
figments of my imagination even. I guess I see sort of all of us. I mean, it depends who you identify with, right? Because if you identify with like your physical body and like, you know, the, if you think you exist inside of your brain, somewhere behind your forehead. You can only prove that you are real because that is the only reality that you experience. Okay, let me, let me explain this another way. So mm -hmm. like you have a hand, right? And you have fingers on that hand. And I see solipsism in one way as saying, well, like here's this pinky, that's me. And here's all these other fingers. And I'm gonna just say that they don't exist. But this pinky exists. It's like, well, how do you know that your idea of yourself even exists in the first place? You know what I mean? Another thing that I want to point out is I think that there are very, I, I myself have never met anybody who lives as a solipsist in practical life, right? So we as philosophers like thought experiments. We have thought experiments like, like this, thought experiments that leads to kind of a solipsistic viewpoint. Some have other names, right? Wondering, there's all kinds of experiment, thought experiments, the swamp man, right? Maybe, maybe you're not really you, right? You're just sort of a recreated swamp man that just happens to look like the person um, um, that I thought you was. So anyway, I don't want to get in any of that stuff. But, but the main thing I want to say is that I don't think that there are actually people living every single second of their lives and of their days as solipsists. I do agree that they're egoists. There's people who only care about themselves. I do think there's people who are very arrogant, um, that are not interested in others, right? But that's not the same as solipsism, right? Um, one thing I think is important to realize there is the following, that um, I might, right, abstractly think I'm a solipsist and wonder about how I can access other minds and that this is not possible and that I can doubt the existence of another mind, right? But I think even people who do that every now and then and who stop themselves and kind of go through reflections like that every now and then, right, are always already constantly informed by the real complicated internal lives of others, right? Um, um, and a lot of my thought around that is 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 really comes from a philosopher that I have studied as a scholar in depth, and that's a French philosopher, um, just like um, Descartes, but um, a French, French philosopher from the 20th century, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who is a phenomenologist. That's why I think, in a sense, it's not a, a, a. I mean, it is a real position, but it's not not a position that anyone goes around endorsing. Really, there's very few people I think that would identify as solipsists and you should probably stay away from them if they do um but it's a unique and interesting challenge right it's a puzzle um and it opens up um much like skepticism it opens up interesting questions about uh, what kind of knowledge we have of other minds so say just like skepticism in general about knowledge of the external world no one's probably going to live their lives thinking you know nothing exists and they can't know anything about the world that just wouldn't, you know, be very functional for day to day. Um, but it does change your your perspective on the world once you start thinking about how you have knowledge of these things and what you can be sure about. And 
uh, in philosophy, right, it makes a big difference for philosophy of science, about how we pursue our knowledge of the world, what we can be sure about, and even day-to-day, how reliable are our memories. Those kinds of issues can become you know, practical really fast when it comes to testimony or other kinds of, of issues about you know, how certain can I be that my memories are vertical. Um, solipsism as well, I think. You know, even if no one walks around believing they're the only one in the universe, that would be very strange. But once you start thinking about that challenge, you come to realize, well, wait a minute, how, how do I have knowledge of other minds? What, what evidence do I have? And in what ways should I presume that other people's experience is like my own, right? So in, in a way, I mean, I, I think, it's my own view, that means kind of has an ironic upshot that you can actually generate more empathy for people once you start thinking about solipsism a bit because you realize that other people's experience is not necessarily like your own, even if you believe they exist, which I think most people should, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's this idea that goes around that we're all one, right? So in a sense, if we are all one, then if you're solipsistic, well, that implies that you're just as real as everyone else, which is like not real at all, right? If you're coming from the place that's like, I exist beyond the idea of myself or my ego or whatever, and you're basically saying like, yes, I only exist, but I am not like this physical being or whatever, like my intellectual mind or whatever, and I'm something beyond that. In the very ground level of our existence, we're always already connected to others. And that is precisely sort of how we are relating to others as as already informing us. And that we can never separate ourselves from that. That it actually takes a very difficult cognitive process to learn to separate us from others. Right, And so in, in, in developmental philosophy there too, again, right, it takes up until about two years, two year old to fully understand that they're completely separate, right? Really small children, even older than two year olds can still ask you, right? Do you remember mom? I just remember my kid saying this at one point. Do you remember mom? Um, what song we sang at school today? And I said, oh, no, I don't. I wasn't there, remember? But there still is this kind of openness, this assumption of not fully being separated from the people you love, right? Um, and the older we get, obviously you see that in, in, in puberty happening very strongly, right? This kind of separation. I'm this different person than you, and you don't tell me what to do, right? And so it's really a maturing process where we suddenly start asking these theoretical question and start being able to do this really difficult cognitive work if we're all seeing our own realities then there is no reality except the ones that we just create in our own mind but with this kind of emotional connection that we have using like these inner senses right we go like back back inside right like the way many people think about whether they're living in a simulation right now that's becoming a more common kind of you know, uh, known thing for people to sometimes just joke about or, or consider. And, and if you think, well, if I, if it's potentially the fact that I'm living in a simulation, then it's, it's just to bring that solipsistic question out even more vividly because you think, well, if I'm in a simulation, why presume these other characters are actual other people in a group simulation or, or maybe they're just, you know, parts of the simulation for me to interact with and not actual people? Um, you know, again, I think it's a kind of interesting 
challenge, but I think it's very difficult to live day to day on that. Like who who are you really, right? It's it's that's like one of the big questions. Um like if a if a thought passes through your mind, did it come from you or did it was it someone else's idea that you're just thinking? And like I guess yeah, that's the essence of conditioning. But I think really like fundamentally the simplest way to to uh, tackle that the answer to that is like does this idea feel good like does it does it bring a sense of joy to think about it and i think that's how you know because that's like your like that would be your inner being metaphorically speaking yeah but you know but at, at the same time it's like there's no proper proof to disprove that so like yeah it sounds ridiculous and it seems totally narcissistic and egotistical but at the same time like you don't like my reality is the only one i can prove is real because that's what i'm experiencing in every millisecond that's every instant and like what my reality is is just a bunch of a stacks of bunch of instants like happening basically in real time but there's no way for me to check up on anybody else like to make sure that they're real also so like it kind of in some weird convoluted way it makes sense but seeing the world that way i don't think is very healthy i think that and i'm no psychologist so i i but i i think that a lot of people who do treat others uh, in really instrumental ways and don't take the perspectives of others seriously i think it's more likely a, a emotional deficit a lack of empathy and uh, a lack of conscience i don't think those people if pressed if asked do you really you know not believe there are other people in the world i doubt that that those people would answer like no, I. <laughs> the funny thing being, given that the interview person asking the question would be, <laughs> have to say to them, "No, I don't believe you're real." Um, I I assume that's very rare. I mean, the little bit I've I've read of those kinds of, you know, either serial killers or whatever other hedge fund managers <laughs> that are like that are like, you know, there's been lots of interesting books in the last ten years hypothesizing that there's many more sociopaths out there than we initially thought. But I assume those people still think that there are other minds. They just have deficits about being able to take the significance of those other minds seriously enough, I think. But I mean, you're right, you're right to think there's a, if you really did take a solipsistic view seriously, it would, well, it'd be interesting because then you, you wouldn't even necessarily have to have the emotional deficits. You just, they're just, if you really did believe that, there'd be no reason to treat others with appropriate fairness or respect. I mean, you just think they're all, you know, abstract window dressing on the world, which would be very weird, right? You know, like there, there's a there's different levels of understanding things, and not everything is something you can like you can uh, figure out like a math problem, right? Um, it is possible, and I think I, I, that might be important to say. It is possible precisely for the reason that you give somebody else full humanity to then also seriously 
dehumanize them and treat them badly, right? So I think it's sometimes important to realize that. So, so there are, right, I said there are egoists and there are arrogant people around, but there are also people who, who can do genuinely evil things, right? Um, and so I don't necessarily think that someone who either systematically oppresses someone or systematically uh, makes other people suffer or tortures other people, right, does so based on the levels like, oh, right, it's just like, like, I can, I can um, um, break a chair, right, and on the same level I can break this human being. I think there's something very different going on and, and um, in, in a kind of sense, I think, some of these people precisely because these other people are full human beings want to break them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think the true evil comes from. I don't think you're particularly evil. Uh, you might be clumsy or, or, um, um, disrespectful for, for breaking down a chair, right? Say it's my chair, right? It's like, so yes, I don't think that's a nice thing to do, but to break a human being, right, is a very different thing than breaking an object. And so I think people who do those things are fully aware that they're not just breaking a chair, right? Breaking a human being, they're breaking a, um, 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 experiencing body, Right, and that makes it so particularly evil when they do that. Um, um, in 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 a lot of those things, just as as a reference, right? I would follow the um, Simone de Beauvoir's Ethics of Ambiguity, right? And and so when some of these unethical things happen, I think it's again not premised on the sense that I'm a solipsist. I think other people are not real, and so it doesn't matter when I do something to them. Um, I actually think people who are actually harming others are very often doing that because they want to hurt another person. You don't hurt a chair. A chair doesn't feel pain. You hurt another human being. So again, that is premised on this. We have, we always already sort of recognize each other as fellow human beings. Like when you say nothing exists, you kind of think, well, clearly something exists because I can touch this table, right? And like, you know, you can see a world through your senses. And so in doing so, it sort of implies that things exist because you're experiencing something. I think like someone who is incredibly solipsistic would not, that wouldn't end up being good for them because like human lives aren't, aren't simply just like, you know, eat food drink water, sleep in bed, repeat. Like that's not like people need that like social interaction and stuff. And like, if you don't have any sort of empathy for other people, then I don't think that you'd be able to have like a healthy social life. And I don't think that you'd have like a healthy emotional life either. Is the physical world the real world? And I don't think it is <laughs> in, in a sense. Um, I see the physical world as sort of just a projection of our own thoughts. So like in the same sense that, you know, a person can misperceive something and see it differently for what it is for that person experiencing that thing, he or she will experience that misperception as real. 
So it'll feel real. It'll smell real. It'll like everything about it will feel real. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's true. Like, I guess things kind of exist on like the spectrum. Like if, if you were like a pure, pure solipsist or whatever, like I think it would be very hard to have any sort of empathy or understanding for other people's lives and emotions and like mentalities or like how their interpretation like like you wouldn't care about anybody else's reality at all because yours is the only true one so but that being said if you like have some solipsistic tendencies then I don't see why you couldn't have both Sonder and solipsism in your life like that makes I don't think they're mutually exclusive I think if you were a pure solipsist they would be but so binary you could be not a nihilist you could be a realist about there being actual right and wrong values built right into the fabric of the universe and yet if you really believed your solipsistic view then you'd think there's just none of those would be instantiated in your position right you could think it is wrong to steal from other persons it's just there's no persons around to steal from (laughs) it's not a question of whether or not the physical world is real it's just like how much of it is our own misperception because we're all misperceiving something to some degree it's just about how much yeah i mean and again it's it's logically possible but i mean even if that's true interestingly like in the same way that many sociopaths apparently function in the world because they they learn the rules they learn that if they start treating people very badly outright they get repercussions they get blowback and so many sociopaths apparently like are able to mask their problem by learning and picking up on social cues in a way that they they don't feel but can mimic enough to get by i guess if you were a full-on solipsist you you might be able to do that just because it's advantageous like in a game right this is okay this is the way we think reality works I think we think, (laughs) is there is a physical world out there. um, And we sort of feel alienated from it a little bit. And our senses perceive this world. And our senses or our brains analyze whatever is coming through the senses. And then we have thoughts associated with whatever we're perceiving. And then... From that point, we can choose to take action using our voice or our body. Yeah, in order to make a change if we want to make a change. But what if it was what if it was kind of different? So like thought experiment. What if the reality you are experiencing, or the physical world at least, what we consider the reality? What if that physical world wasn't so much us perceiving the world, but us projecting it onto a blank screen so like if we like think for a second so like how cool would it be as an idea assuming that like nothing ever existed or anything it would be such a cool idea to experience your thoughts as though they were real like that would be so awesome it's like hmm, i have this idea of there being a world and living inside it and obviously you can't live inside a world if you know that you're creating it right because it's like it's just your own thoughts and it would be obvious it'd be like like yeah this obviously this world is created by me 
Like an extended lucid dream or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Super extended. Yeah. So like, yeah, so, so what if it's like, what if our thoughts are the things that are generating what we're perceiving and not the other way around? Then if we were to change our thinking or change the story of, of what goes on in our mind, like what if the physical reality appears to change? Yeah, so Merleau-Ponty really, really tips the problem of other minds on its head, right? So Merleau-Ponty says that initially we live, what he says, in sympathy with others. So when we are born, right, he take the example of an infant who's, right, one infant lying in a hospital starting to cry, the infant next to that then starts also crying, right? So we have these examples of how infants takes, take over um, the emotion of another, right? Um, and making it themselves, right? Um, um, and you call this emotional contagion. And you see that a lot in, in infants, but you also see it in adults, right? We have that too. I, I have a conversation with a good friend of mine. That friend might have gotten some bad news that day, might not even talk about whatever. I might not know that there, that there has been some bad news for, for my friend, right? But my friend is down, right? I can get out of that conversation feeling down and not really sure where that feeling comes from. But my friend has infected me with their feeling of, of, of sadness, right? And, and so emotional contagion is something that happens more often than we think, but it very often happens on what Merleau-Ponty would call a pre-reflective level right? So I can be aware and reflect theoretical about all kinds of things, but somehow, right, under the surface, my body has taken on an emotional sense, feeling, right? It can be sadness, can also be happiness when you meet someone who is really excited about things, that, that excitement can also be contagious. And I might not fully be aware that that has happened, right? Someone else might say, oh, you're happy today. Why is that? Did something happen today? And I say, no, but I just talked to so-and-so and I guess I must have been infected with her bubbliness, right? So those types of things that, that lead him to say that in the very ground level of our existence, we're always already connected to others. But it's a feeling. It's like you have these inner senses inside you and that's sort of, that's like your guide. It's like when you experience pain, that's your guide, like metaphorically speaking, your guide telling you that the thing that you're creating in your mind that's being projected and being felt as real is not the real real. It just looks real. So then what happens is if you, instead of, instead of just uh, kind of like, taking your perceptions from reality and taking that as truth, and then thinking that, because if, if you see something and then you think it's true, or you, sorry, you see something, yes, you see something, you think it's true, and then you think it, and then it becomes more true because you're still thinking about it. So it's like this endless cycle. And so we're, we're sort of, we're always experiencing our thoughts 
if we instead go inside and instead of giving our idea of reality to our outer senses, we give it to our inner senses and we think, hey, like I have this feeling in me and maybe maybe that feeling is responding to your thinking in the moment. It's like if you have a, a, a thought of something scary, let's say, um, what's something physical that's scary? Spider. Spider. Okay, you see a spider and you think these thoughts and you think that this spider is evoking a feeling of fear in you. But really, the fear is indicating that your thoughts are those that are about fear and that's being projected and then you're seeing the spider. So instead of the spider being scary, your fear is creating the spider to exactly. be scary yeah the fear is your own that yeah. you've created yeah whatever you think you're you will experience as real that's the whole point of this like the, this game that we're in it's like if you think fear thoughts you're going to experience fear things and those fear things will scare the shit out of you and that's what that's what we're here to do we're here to experience our thoughts as though they were external and at the time, it's like, you know, it's the most real thing, right? But then looking back, I was just like, why? Like, I was imprisoning myself in my own jail. And it's just like, why was I doing that? But, you know, I didn't see at the time that I was just creating that. I was creating that feeling using my own mind. Yeah, and I think... To an extent, the only way that you can learn that you're doing that to yourself and to gain the strength to not hopefully do that to yourself again is by going through it, right? To what, like, I think maybe it seems to me, at least through my personal experience and hearing others' experience, um, you have to go through that on your own at some point. You can't just hear about it being a thing and then be able to be like, oh, I'll never put myself through that. Mm -hmm. You have to, to some extent, maybe, maybe some people are lucky enough to not have to, but... I think to some extent we've all had that experience of imprisoning ourselves and our feelings and then getting outside of it and realizing I didn't have to feel that way and I don't want to feel that way again. Mm -hmm. And what can I do to make myself feel the way that I want to, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's, you know, really useful to engage in these very abstract problems that don't initially look like they have much practical upshot. But once you've engaged in that kind of hard thinking about how we come to have knowledge, you know, when I, lay this out for my first year students um it can it can have practical implications later once you're just more careful in your thinking about how you come to have knowledge even if you're going <laughs> to presume you at least have some knowledge of the world yeah yeah I, the other analogy i sometimes use is lifting weights right i mean you lift weights not necessarily because you think you're going to go out in the world and like meet a 50 pound barbell or something and think oh my god i need to lift this <laughs> it's not how it works but that kind of training can help you do other things. And I think philosophy is very similar. You know, meeting these kinds of abstract challenges can be helpful for the things that are actually very practical, yeah. So, for example, you, you know, the, in the traditional form of skepticism, you don't have any knowledge of the external world. Um, philosophers like to wrestle with this as a way of trying to understand how we come to have knowledge. There's very few people who actually endorse skepticism and especially solipsism but it's a really useful challenge to make us think about how we come to have knowledge of other minds or more generally the external world right do we do we get it all from 
perception? Do we have some innate ideas? Do we get some ideas straightforwardly through reason without having to get it empirically through the world? Um, these are all the kind of challenges philosophers worry about. Is Sonder a feeling? Or is it an idea? Um, Sonder is, seems like the feeling that um, you're, or it, it seems like the feeling that everybody else, or no, I, I, guess, I guess it's your realization that everybody else has a, a life just as complex and like an internal dialogue just as complex as yours. And like, it's very hard to think about that from like an internal standpoint. If solipsism means what I think it means, which is that like your ego or whatever is the only one that's experiencing life and the others aren't, and then Sonder is everyone is experiencing everything, then I think those just like, they, could they have to be exclusive to each other? And it's like interesting juxtaposition between the two. Yeah, it's like a, a flip side of solipsism, uh, you know, the inverse. Because they kind of, one reflects more of like an individualistic mindset, like the, the solipsism, whereas like a collective mindset or like kind of a, yeah, a collective mindset being the sonder kind of um, feeling. Um, and I think very important. And what I think, as I mentioned a bit earlier, I think what's really interesting is that w once you consider solipsism in its full, you know, philosophical challenge, um, I think it can actually lead you closer to a state of sonder because you realize very quickly that a full solipsistic position isn't realistic. You think either most philosophers either use arguments from analogy or just inference to best explanation to think, yeah, look, there's almost certainly other minds out there. But you get this interesting question about how we have knowledge of those other minds and how much we can presume that their minds are the same as ours. And it comes up you know, most prominently in our uh, considering non-human animals, right? I mean, most of us don't really believe like Descartes did that non-human animals are just mere, you know, mechanism with nothing, no, you know, feeling or thoughts on the inside. And yet we also don't really have a conception of what it's like to be one of those animals, especially when you start considering most famously, according to one philosopher, like you take bats or dolphins or, you know, any kind of creature with echolocation, it's hard to really even imagine what it's like to be inside the head of that kind of creature. So it's it's this interesting way in which once you consider the problem, you realize, well, yeah, there probably are minds out there, but I'm not really sure how similar they are to mine, especially when you know human minds are so profoundly constructed by uh, language acquisition and propositional thinking that it's really, you know, I'm always wondering this at home, just looking at my dog, like, what are you thinking? You know, everyone has that moment looking in their dog's eyes, like, what is it like, you know, on the inside for you? Um, I think it's a really interesting question. And even amongst humans, I think there's really interesting questions about um, you know, understanding the profoundly, you know, our similarities and our differences, right? And the ways in which other people's experiences are not necessarily like my own. So, 
often I think when you hear people making really insensitive comments like, oh, why isn't that person just kick their drug habit? You know, why don't they just stop? Or, or about, you know, uh, indigenous persons like who are, you know, victims of, you know, generational um, oppression and colonization. You think, oh, well, that was in the past. Why can't they just get over it or something? When people make those insensitive comments, I think often it's because they just don't have a sense of what it's like to be that other mind. Like you can't, you can't take away the validity of someone's experience in that way by like pointing out to them that they're wrong. And I think we've all tried that in like, you know, relationships and stuff. It's like, like, no, you're, you're seeing this wrong. It's like, they're seeing it the way that they see it. And they're not going to see it any other way because that's their thoughts and that's their reality. It may, it may be impossible to fully grasp someone else's mental states in the same way we very immediately have access to our own mental states, or at least some of them. Um, there's interesting questions even about how well we grasp our own mental states. But saying that aside, I don't want to say it's, or it might be impossible to fully get in the head of someone else, but it's not impossible to get an appreciation of their perspective through, you know, talking with them through discussion, through really making efforts to get into their their head and their perspective. I, I think, you know, uh, film and literature are very good at, at this, often in ways that, you know, just, you know, straightforward, um, you know, anti-racism, anti-sexism campaigns on paper can be difficult. But if you really make efforts to, you know, live and understand other people's perspective through literature sometimes or through film, you can you can gain appreciation for other perspectives in a way that I think's really helpful. When you when you kind of understand or when you're going through something and you like experience hardship then seeing other people go through something even though it might not be the same you know you really learn to like empathize and like realize that like you know like whoa like that person's going through something and it's not it's not just something you can like kind of shrug off if you've gone through something like painful or struggling that's why i think these things are kind of interestingly connected because once you consider how we have other knowledge of other minds from considering the solipsism problem i think it can actually lead you to a certain kind of saunter in a way that you are more open to other people's different perspectives yeah because you've you've thought about like well look i know my perspective and i'm you know by analogy it's it's very likely that other minds exist but now that i've considered that i don't have obvious and clear knowledge of their mental states in the same way i do of my own it suddenly makes me, I think, that much more cautious about presuming too much about what I know of their mental states and how they experience the world, right? I mean, strangers' perception of me has always impacted my existence because that's kind of how... Well, I, I, I didn't realize how heavily it, it impacted me until I started like playing with gender and stuff like that because, you know, how you are perceived by the world is actually really important in your own sense of self because like you know no matter how much i'd like to say like i don't give a crap about you know what people think about me as a person but like deep down you know i i do you know people do and if you don't then you're probably not a good person yeah and then like playing with gender and stuff kind of led me to the realization that yeah like i am fundamentally more I feel like a fuller person when I'm perceived in a feminine light and 
So in a sense, I feel like strangers' perspectives on you are pretty important, or at least to trans people, because that's something that you experience on a day-to-day life with like um, just kind of microaggressions and stuff like that. But like also not only trans people, but any sort of minority or not cis white dude stuff. It's sort of like comes from like, like an egotistic sort of view, right? It's like... Um like not my hand analogy because that implies oneness with everyone but like for someone that's just like oh it's only me in the world me as in like pete pete is the only real experiencer of reality that kind of solipsism i think like the path the path to get to sonder would probably involve some sort of some sort of love transformation of like is like you being alone in the world, like, is that really an experience that you want to have? Is that really like an enjoyable experience? Like, I love the idea that there are other people here with me. Like, I think that's super fantastic. Like, hey, I'm not alone. How cool is that? Like, we get to, you get to have friends, you get to hang out and like other people are real. And it's just like, you know, do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, Derek Parfit, a philosopher, has has toyed with this in his um, philosophy because he he famously thinks that each of our personal identities is much more complicated than we think, and and thinks that there's a sense in which persons don't really exist in any kind of clean and distinct way, and he thinks that position leads you to a kind of uh, massive empathy with all instances of uh, pleasure or pain or uh, so that you know ethics is about promoting the most uh, good for all these different uh, instances or locations where pleasure and pain exists even if it's not in yourself so it's I don't know it's approaching that kind of I don't know, mystical, I suppose, state. But I think that's a kind of lim- limiting case. I think most of us day to day only approximate that in our family relations, say, especially now as a parent. You know, when when you, you start to identify so profoundly with your children and really care so much about um, their well-being that you get like a little glimpse of what that, that's like. I mean, not that I can ever perfectly understand the like mental states of my daughter, but uh, at least... And massively interested in promoting her well-being, yeah. Kind of like revolving around like my transition stuff and like kind of having my own like intense internal dialogue for like years leading up to it and leading up to my like discovery that I was trans and whatnot. And then like kind of coming to, well, this is all kind of happening simultaneously, but also realizing that like, there's other people who have gone through the same thing and like um, how like strong though that internal struggle must have been. Cause like I felt my own and then like realizing that like, whoa, like everybody to one degree or another has this struggle that they're going through, whether or not they're trans or whatever, like they could be going through something else, but um, and like everyone's realities although they are like individually experienced, like they're not like, you can't really compare them. Like someone's worst tragedy 
it might be like objectively worse than someone else's, but they would feel it like the same to the same intensity, you know. And but still, I think there's a sense in which there's uniqueness such that you, I mean, short of these kind of interesting, you know, mystical limiting cases, you you can't fully ever appreciate other people's perspective. You can try your best and ought to, uh, and you ought to recognize the commonality of our experience. But yeah, I think there's a way in which we're all incredibly unique. And then, yeah, the non-human animal case just extends that. Like I, I just don't, you know, I, I believe that uh, dolphins are sentient, that they have minds. I just don't at all know what it's like <laughs> to be, you know, swimming around and being able to, they can echolocate and they can actually read the echolocation of other dolphins uh, sonar apparently, which is kind of mind-bogglingly complex in terms of what their perception is of that. Um, I don't know. It's really hard to get your head around. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm wrapped up in my own head all the time. So like, I'm not, I never, I hardly have time to like let my mind wander about other random people. I don't know. Like I, I try not to think about it because that would be too much. You know, like thinking about how everybody has complex backstories and like trying to imagine all of those with like just passerbys on the street. Like, I, that just seems, it seems like a task, a very difficult task for one person. Yeah, that, that sounds terrifying. Like, it, like that makes me want to barf. Like that's like not, <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying. It's like a singular singularity, singularity like of like imaginings of realities. You know, and it's important to empathize with people, but not empathize too much, because then you kind of fall into their world. And I, I just don't see that as a scary thing. Like I don't see, you know, if I want to explore someone else's scary world, that's not scary to me. So, and maybe, maybe I'm just not exploring it deeply enough. But I think in, in real life cases, um, I think appreciating the uniqueness of other people's perspectives does lead to a kind of altruism, a kind of um, recognition that other people's interests are important. The more you, you see things from their point of view, I mean, not necessarily, as, as I'm saying it, as a philosopher, I can't help but think of counterexamples, right? Like I can, I might see different perspectives that are terrible, right? I mean, I can imagine no, now I, some, maybe I have some pill that gives me like really great insight into other people's, or uh, maybe not a pill is a good idea. Some, <laughs> some kind of like, some kind of headset, say some power that makes me like, I can get really get in the head of other people. And if I get in the head of some kind of terrible sociopathic serial killer or something it might not make me think like wow i really want to help them with their goals right it doesn't so not necessarily but i think um in many cases uh it would help to generate empathy i think though i don't think it's a necessary condition i think i think we have many cases where people have say a profound empathy for others but they project their own um, say mental states onto others. So then you get cases of kind of paternalistic help where someone's altruistic, 
but they're not really considering the other person they're helping as a distinct and interesting you know person with their own unique perspective like to me at the end of the day like these are just words right mm -hmm. and whatever ideas that might evoke in someone's mind they have like each of us has that thing within us that can that that like emotional um guidance where it's like you can validate psh. like the moment a thought comes in your head you could be like i like this thought you know this feels feels good to me and like in my perspective that is that is the thing that like you ought to be listening to is like how does this thought feel to me and then if you follow that if you follow that good feeling then eventually you're going to arrive at this truth i think the most profound thing as a philosopher that i've come to learn is as right as a really boring you know straight white man philosopher is that when i consider these kinds of things i just think it's so important for me as a philosopher to get into the minds and be accepting of other perspectives right and, and that's the challenge right now in philosophy as we try to get much more diversity in the profession is to really consider carefully like how do other people from other backgrounds how do you know women trans other you know especially being open to indigenous perspectives how to incorporate that and really not just pay lip service to that but appreciate those perspectives um, and incorporate them into our uh, philosophical discussions that i mean that's the first thing i think of when it comes to sonder in a, in a practical sense of how to appreciate all these very unique and different perspectives out there you know so like usually giving um you know or uh connecting with maybe some some uh, person on the streets or something like that or like going a little bit out of your way to help somebody will oftentimes leave you with a sense of fulfillment but i think usually like that's kind of a way to break the the idea that you're the only one because if you help someone else you might find that you get a rush from it. You might find like, oh, wow, like, huh, I never really, like, that's a really nice feeling. It's like, oh, never really thought of that before. But if you keep following, you know, the patterns of like, no one exists at me, so I'm just going to do my thing and blah, blah, blah. Then like, you'll never actually be exposed to, to that feeling. And it's like, it's that feeling that we all want. That's the feeling of love, right? And whether you're, like, you know, giving it or receiving it is, like, irrelevant. The The feeling is there. A lot of, like, for a lot of people, the idea that everyone is experiencing a world as, you know, vivid and complex as your own, that evokes a certain feeling. And I think, like, pretty generally speaking... It's a feeling of like awe and like wonder and but it's it's those feelings specifically that like are the key point it's like those are the feelings that allow us to see the world the way we want to see it 
you know, philosophical thought sounds very big and weighty, but in a sense, philosophers are just like children that keep running around asking why about everything. And so really philosophical starts, thoughts, as you say, start really early, just basic questioning of things. And I think that at its best, right, that kind of questioning when it comes to other minds and other perspectives can lead to, to more empathy with other people's points of view. Yeah. Take philosophy courses. They're great. <laughs> yeah. This episode of Play on Words was produced by Katie Denslow with help from Chris Radula, Lyndon Sayers, and Katie Sage. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to all of our guests on this episode, Sophia, Florentine, Scott, and Pete. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the BC Gaming Society. If you like what you heard on this episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, give me your ear. Let's, uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. My name is Peter Underwood, and I've volunteered with Wheelney Radio. I've learned a lot about recording and interviewing. I actually had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of people I really look up to while working on a podcast on Indigenous food sovereignty. The great thing was that I got to learn a lot about the land and how to how to work in food sovereignty and what that really means and the resurgence of being connected to the land. What made me want to volunteer was hearing all of the good podcasts that other people have done, especially those by Indigenous people. And I just feel like it'd be so cool to see so many more Indigenous podcasts out there and more Indigenous media in general. And I feel like podcasts are a great way to start in media production. It's uh, It's been really approachable and I had some really good training here at CFUV. So I definitely recommend anyone to at least sign up to be a volunteer. If you like this experimental podcast, you might also enjoy our Play on Words episode on the concept of time. It's called Ultimate Timekeeper.